0: If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of your Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 17 uh, is where we find ourselves today. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Rachel uh, mentioned are under the seats, page uh, 11 is where this is in those Bibles. In the course of history, on the the grand scheme of things, 13 years really is not that long of a, a period of time. It's really a blip on the radar. But 13 years in the course of a real life can feel like a very long time. So just to start this morning, I want to invite you to think about what your life was like 13 years ago from today. July of 2004 is what 13 years ago from today would have been. My life, probably like yours, was, was quite a bit different um, than it is today. And so then imagine how hard it would be if that day, 13 years ago, you were promised something and you had to wait all the way until now for any kind of fulfillment to to come to that promise. We as a society, we culturally, we're a very impatient people. And increasingly, we are about immediate gratification in our society. Technology fuels that, lots of things fuel that. We're all about immediate gratification. So 13 years for you and I is way more than enough time for us to give up completely and just move on to something else that doesn't require that kind of patient waiting. Well, this is how much time, 13 years, has passed between the end of Genesis chapter 16 and where we pick up the story of Abraham's life at the beginning of Genesis 17 today. And just to read it in succession, just to read through the book of Genesis, we read through those 4,750-ish days in a breath, right? There's a period at the end of one sentence and there's the start of a new sentence. And That's how fast it goes by. But in in the narrative of Abraham's life, it's a really pronounced gap in the story. Genesis 16 ends, if you were here with us last week, we we looked at that chapter. Genesis 16 ends on this note uh, of God as the one who sees. God is the one who sees us in our suffering. He's not calloused or cold to our suffering. He sees us in it, and he's with us in our suffering. And and Genesis 16 is all about Abraham and Sarah, how, how they've grown tired of waiting and being patient on God. So they take matters into their own hands. And Abraham takes Hagar as a wife, and she becomes pregnant with Ishmael. But God says, no, that's not actually how I'm going to continue and and fulfill my promise through you and your family. So trust me and wait. And we see, especially in the narrative of Hagar there in Genesis 16, God saying, I see you in your suffering. I'm with you in that. I'm not leaving you alone in that. So as someone who, myself, as a reader of this, who is part of our impatient, immediate gratification culture, I hit the end of Genesis chapter 16, and I think, all right, finally, like, here we go. God's been talking about this promise of descendants to Abraham the way that he's kind of intended it from the start. Now we're finally going to get some traction on that. And instead, there's another 13 years of silence. And Abraham ages from 86 to 99, Sarah to almost 90, Ishmael to a young teenager, And there's nothing recorded for us in Scripture of anything that happens in those 13 years. No more appearances from God. No more angelic messengers. Just silence for 13 years. When you come to a gap like this in the narrative of someone's life in Scripture, and especially in the life of Abraham, don't fly past it. Don't skip over it. They're incredibly important, and they actually are very relevant for our lives today. Because the beautiful example that Abraham gives us in the midst of some of his terrible and tragic examples, and we've seen plenty of those in this story as well, but the beautiful example is that Abraham holds on to faith through through an incredible amount of uncertainty and unknown. And he holds on to faith through very long periods of delay and very long gaps between promise and fulfillment. And so for you, if, if God feels distant for you this morning, or absent completely, or if there's some aspect in your life where the, the gap between your present reality and the things that you really long for just feels unbridgeable. Maybe that's a life and career kinds of decisions. You're here, and you really long to be there, and it doesn't seem like there's any way for you to ever get there. Or maybe your, your marriage is in a really bad place. You long for it to be here, but, but, but right now it's here, and it just doesn't feel like you can get there. Or your kids are breaking your heart because of some of the poor decisions that they're making with their lives. Or even if it's not circumstantial, you can't place your finger on circumstances at all, and you just have what, what sages of old have forever called the dark night of the soul. Where you can't really even put your finger on circumstances, but you just, you just as, you, as you try to seek God, there just seems to be nothing there. He seems to be distant, he seems to be absent. There is camaraderie for you, if that describes you, in the pages of Scripture and in the lives of Sarah and Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, God is going to break into that 13-year silence. And he's going to give Abraham and Sarah a covenant sign. And for Abraham then, just as for us today, though the particulars are different, these covenant signs are really some of the greatest kindnesses that God can give us in the midst of these gaps between promise and fulfillment. For those of us, like myself, who are weak, who are fickle, who are impatient, who are anxious, covenant signs are these anchoring reminders and really participation in the promises of God, even when it seems like nothing at all is happening. So I invite you to consider that in Abraham and Sarah's life, from Genesis 17. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover peace. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So two things uh, that we will consider this morning from Genesis chapter 17. God's unconditional conditional covenant, that's the first one, and then God's covenant sign. So first, let's talk about God's unconditional conditional covenant. Uh, If you've been with us in this series, we're about halfway through this series studying the life of Abraham right now. If you've been with us, you've seen this progression to these promises, to this covenant that God has made with Abraham. And it's not always that easy to track with. There's an initial and a conditional promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. God is going to make Abraham into a great nation. He's going to bless all the families of the earth through him. But the condition is is that Abraham has to leave his homeland and go to the land that God will show him. Then fast forward to Genesis 15. There's a very dramatic escalation of these covenant promises. There's this really vivid scene where God cuts, is is the literal word used there in Genesis 15, cuts a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham takes these animals, these sacrificial animals, cuts them in half, sets them apart from each other, and as was a common tradition in the ancient Near East, both parties making a covenant would pass between those divided halves of these sacrificial animals, in essence saying, may the same thing happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain in this covenant. But the really unique thing about Genesis 15 is that only God passes through. Only God walks the aisle between the divided pieces. Abraham doesn't do anything in that covenant-making ceremony. So God there is making this unilateral, unconditional covenant. He's obligating himself to give Abraham a people and a place. So what then, when we get to Genesis 17, what's the deal with what God is saying to Abraham here in Genesis 17? He appears to him and he says, walk before me, be blameless, so that I can make my covenant with you. And he requires all the males in Abraham's household to receive the sign of circumcision. He says that actually anyone who doesn't receive that sign is going to be cut off and separated from the people of God. So is God changing his mind? Is he going back to a conditional covenant, having given Abraham an unconditional one just a few chapters earlier? And just for a second, step back from Abraham. Here's why this is such an important question for you and I to consider and wrestle with. Underneath Uh, These culturally distant practices, like you probably don't make commitments with people by dividing animals in half and walking down the aisle. If you do, we should probably talk about that. Um, Also, even the covenant of circumcision, that feels culturally distant for, for many of us. This gets at deeper issues about the nature of God and about how he relates to you and I as his created human beings. In other words, are there conditions to God's love for us? Or can God change on a whim between being unconditional and being conditional? Or maybe even more fundamental, does what you and I do in this life matter at all? The key line to navigating this in Genesis 17 is right there in verse 1. The first thing that God says to Abraham is, walk before me. In other words, God's covenant that he is making here throughout the book of Genesis, even in its progressive stages, it's a relational covenant. It's an invitation into a relationship with God. And therefore, it's going to be both unconditional and conditional at exactly the same time. I know that's hard for our minds to wrap around, but that's what we learn from the book of Genesis. It's unconditional in that we are such unequal parties with God. It's like no human covenant or human relationship. We're such unequal parties that in order for there to be a relationship at all, God has to initiate something unilaterally. We have no place to approach God, to ask God, let alone to demand something from God. So God must obligate himself to us, this lesser party, so that a relationship can exist at all. And this is really the essence of covenant as we understand it from Scripture. God binding himself to his people. The refrain in Scripture that comes over and over again, we even heard it today in the words of encouragement, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that's this unilateral, unconditional aspect of God's covenant. God keeps being the God of his people even when they reject him, even when they seemingly want nothing to do with him. But this covenant is also conditional. And the condition, what we see here in Genesis 17, is that we must be transformed. Be blameless is the way that it's described there in Genesis 17. In other words, that God's covenant must have an effect on us. To have a relationship with God means that we actually are relating to him, that there are going to be some reciprocal, even though unequal, but reciprocal interactions between God and us. So I know this is not a perfect example because in a wedding the parties are equal, but think about it a little bit like this. The last wedding ceremony you went to, when a couple stood up and made vows before God before their family and friends, one party goes first. It's usually the husband that goes first in making the vows. And he makes a number of unconditional promises. Right, whatever happens in our lives, in terms of health, in terms of money, in terms of our happiness, whatever happens on those fronts, I'm in. I'm, I'm in this relationship with you. The other person doesn't then respond by saying, man, thank you, that's really great. I'm actually completely unmoved by that. I'm going to stay exactly the way that I am, but I'm glad that you're doing that. I'm really grateful that you're making those kind of unconditional promises to me. Right, That's not a relationship if that's how that goes, In a relationship, the covenant that's made from one draws out and elicits a response from the other. So God's unconditional, conditional covenant is this. God initiates and obligates himself, but his work is never meant to leave us unchanged. His covenant really creates and draws us into a relationship with him. And because relationships are reciprocal, God makes his covenant with people. That requires a responsive and a responsible life for those who receive, those who are recipients of that covenant. Which practically means for us that we pursue holiness. It means that we're obedient to the commands of God. It means that we're actually moved by God, binding himself to us as his people. And we pursue faithfulness to him as as a response. So, I don't know kind of your background, where you come, how you kind of come at these, these difficult, complex topics in scripture. But as you wrestle with this, don't fall off the ditch on either side of the road. If you exclusively emphasize reciprocity in our relationship with God, then you will inevitably give yourself way too much credit and give God way too little credit. And even if you say that your relationship with God is not about earning his love or favor functionally in some way, your relationship with God will become about earning his love and his favor if you talk or exclusively emphasize the reciprocity there in a relationship with God. Instead, allow God's unconditional covenant, the unconditional aspect of it, to cement your understanding that God is great, uh, God is holy, that we are not equal parties with him. And because God is great, his covenant has to be unconditional with us. On the other hand, if you exclusively emphasize the sovereignty of God, you're liable to actually miss the relational aspect of what we're invited into, into altogether. And that's why people like myself who come from more theologically reformed backgrounds, we're often really uncomfortable with the intimate pictures of that relationship that's described for us in Scripture. That God is father, that God is friend, that God is lover, right? that he is a groom and we are his bride. So if that's you, allow the conditions that God puts out here to remind you that in his holiness, in his greatness, in his otherness, God has drawn near and he's called us into a genuine relationship with him to walk before him in a way that, that responds to this unilateral promise that he makes. Or to put it another way, don't just see God's commands, God's conditions as Christian obligation or Christian duty. That's one important way to look at the commands and the conditions that are in scripture for us. Also see them And see them, especially in light of Genesis 17, as an outflow of the relational covenant God makes with his people. It's because God wants a relationship with you that there are conditions involved. He wants a reciprocal, interactive relationship with you. So that's one big piece of Genesis 17, this unconditional, conditional covenant from God. Second, let's talk about God's covenant sign. Sure, as many of you can attest to, maybe you have experienced in your own life, visible and tangible actions are often far more powerful than, than mere words. So personally for me, the example that immediately came to mind for me this week, I'll never forget the night, it's been probably 15 years or so now, uh, when one of my friends literally gave the shirt off of his back to a homeless man in New York City. We were there And we had talked for a few days at that point about how to love and how to serve and how to care for the homeless populations we were going to be interacting with and serving and ministering to while we were in the city on a service trip. And we'd studied a lot of passages in the Bible about Jesus' heart for the poor, Jesus' love and care for those who are marginalized in a society as homeless people are in our society. But I barely remember any of that study, I barely remember any of those discussions. I will forever remember the night my friend walked around the rest of the night without a shirt on because he had literally given his shirt, his, the only one that he had with him, to a homeless man. We've seen also in Abraham's life already how powerful visible gestures can be as God makes his covenant with Abraham. So God took him outside rather than just telling him over and over again, I'm going to give you descendants without number. He actually took him outside, had him look up at the stars and said, count. Start counting. Because if you can count the number of stars that are up in the sky, then you'll be able to count the number of descendants that I will give you. And as we mentioned already, Genesis 15, God in the form of smoke and fire passes between these divided animal parts to make this covenant with Abraham. It's visible, it's tangible, it it, it solidifies the work that God is doing in his words, in the words that he's saying. And so here in Genesis 17, there are two additional actions that that display and solidify God's covenant with Abraham. One of them is a name change. And a name, especially in the ancient Near East, was far more than just how you addressed someone. It was a part of your identity. It was used to really describe some aspect of your your personality or your character. And name changes, especially when we see name changes in Scripture— they indicate something of what God is at work doing, what God is about to do or has done or is doing in and through the person whose name is changed. And so Abram, which means exalted father, becomes Abraham, meaning a father father of a multitude. And what stands out about that change is Abraham's age when, he, when his name is changed. At 99 years old, statistically, biologically, the likelihood that you will father a multitude of nations has been decreasing. And for Abraham, it's been decreasing each and every year since God first made his initial promise to him. That was at least 25 years before, if not earlier. So each and every year that goes by, God's made this promise, but he hasn't changed his name yet. He waits till he's 99 years old to change his name. It's at that moment, on the precipice of becoming a century old, that God says, now I'm going to really solidify this covenant with you through this action. And God clarifies, it's not just going to be a massive number of descendants, but kings will come from your line. Royalty will come from you. So it's not diminishing any of the exalted father, meaning from his original name, Abram. It's actually adding to the exalted state, the favored position that Abraham has with God. It's adding to that the reality that he will be exceedingly fruitful even in his old age. Sarai's name is also changed to Sarah. And there's really, in, in that name change, no discernible difference between the meaning. They both mean princess. But with the name change, this is what would be particularly important for Sarah as she receives this. With this name change comes explicit confirmation of what up to this point has only been implied. And that is that the blessing of Abraham being exceedingly fruitful is going to come through Sarah. Not some other wife of Abraham It's going to come through Sarah. She's going to be the mother of nations and the mother of of kings. Now, that's really incredible for a number of reasons. For one, Sarah's 90, as it says there, well past the time, of life, uh, time in life when women are able to have children. Second, she's already been convinced for at least 13 years, if not longer at this point, that if Abraham is going to have descendants to fulfill God's promise, it's going to have to come through someone else. But remember then, in those 13 years, just think about for a second what Sarah's life would have been like We don't know what those years look like. We have nothing written down for us to record that. But no doubt, they could have only deepened and and confirmed and and made the pain that she felt worse that drove her to take that desperate measure in the first place. So imagine if you are in her shoes how crazy it would feel to 13 years after that have God appear and in that moment change her name as a sign that he is about to make her the mother of nations and kings. We'll learn more about Sarah's response to that when we get to Genesis 18. But it could only be met with this really disorienting combination of joy and disbelief from her. But more than just words from God, which Sarah has heard before, the sign of a name change, even and especially in their old age, makes it that much more of an impending reality that God is about to act and fulfill his promises to them. So a name change is one of the two signs. That's not the only one, nor is it the primary sign of the covenant. The primary sign of the covenant, as we read, is the sign of circumcision. And I asked Nate earlier if when he was leading liturgy, he could put like a diagram of that up on the screen just to kind of depict that for us. He assured me you all knew what it was, uh, so you can thank him for that later. But I'm actually going to ask you to consider this. A lot of you have spent a lot of years around church, right? You spent a lot of years around the church. You spent a lot of years around the Bible, You hear the word circumcision, you're like, yeah, that's in the Bible a lot. I've read that a lot. It was a big deal for the Israelites. Not anymore because of the New Testament. Really think about this. Familiarity breeds contempt. Or at a a minimum, it breeds a lack of awe and a lack of appreciation for what's actually happening here. So try explaining the covenant of circumcision to someone that has no background in the church, no background with the Bible you're kind of walking through the narrative of the story of the life of Abraham. Yeah, God made these promises to Abraham. And then he said, hey, there's a sign that I want you and your descendants to keep. It's going to be a real confirmation, a, a display of my covenant. And it's actually to cut off the foreskin of every male's penis at, eight, at age eight days old. That's going to be the sign. Think about what that's like for someone that's never heard this. They're going to be like, what? Like, where did that? And then there's Moses, and then there's the Exodus. Can we just skip over? Can we just skip over this part of, of Scripture? Why this sign? Why this sign? A few reasons. For one, circumcision was not a new practice. It was not a practice that was unique to the Hebrew people in the ancient Near East. It actually was not all that uncommon for people that lived in that day in that part of the world. And so what we're seeing here, as well as we see throughout other parts of Scripture, is that God shows up and he speaks to his people in a way which leverages the common grace of how he's already been at work in a culture. God's already there. He's already at work in a culture. He shows up, leverages that common grace, but then he specifies and clarifies his purposes and the meaning within those practices. So though it might sound odd, it might even sound barbaric to our modern sensibilities, there are a lot of reasons that circumcision makes perfect sense as the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Covenant signs... What they are, they are are outward pictures of an inward or an invisible reality. And so circumcision is really fitting for these promises that God has been making and, and makes again here to Abraham. For one, it's permanent. It's a permanent sign. It's irreversible. It's irrevocable. So altering your body in a permanent way designates these people, sets these people apart as God's people. It involves cutting. And like we saw in Genesis 15, the word for covenanting, making a covenant, is literally to cut a covenant. So this is God cutting a covenant with his people in a place that that matters. And there's not really a, a more sensitive place on the human body, at least a male body, that you could cut a covenant with someone. And because one of the two pillars of God's promise to Abraham, right, a people and a place, because one of them is about descendants it's perfectly fitting that the sign of the covenant be applied to an external reproductive organ. And so God here requires not only that Abraham, at age 99, receive the sign, but that all of the males in his household receive it. And that's because God is covenanting not just with Abraham individually, he's covenanting with Abraham's offspring and all the generations that are going to come after him. Here's where the real difference is evident between the he, this practice and the covenant sign of circumcision and what other tribes in the ancient Near East practiced. Even the other tribes that practiced it in the ancient Near East, nobody applied it to an eight-day-old baby. Nobody did that. Other tribes, other people groups did this as a rite of passage from childhood to adulthood for males. No one did this to infants. And what that does is it serves to show this unilateral, unconditional nature of God's covenant. An eight-day-old infant can't make a vow, can't make a commitment of his own. They can't uphold any end of the bargain, let alone even understand the concept of what holding a bargain up would be. So children born into this family of Abraham, they enter the world, they complete one cycle of God's rhythm of seven days of work and rest, and then on the eighth day, they receive the sign of God's covenant, they are counted among God's people. And as we read... It's a testament to, to his own faith. The very day that God commands us of Abraham, Abraham obeys. And he himself is circumcised. Every male in his household is circumcised. And when Isaac is born, about a year later, as is promised, on the eighth day of his life, Isaac too was circumcised. And this became the sign that was passed down throughout the centuries, throughout the history of the people of God through the Old Covenant. All the way... Until about 2,000 years after this, in a small village called Bethlehem, an eight-day-old baby named Jesus would also receive this sign. And then, as he grew up, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection... Jesus would come to fulfill this original promise, this original covenant given to Abraham, and he would open wide the doors of God's kingdom so that the people of God were not just Abraham's biological descendants, but really people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So circumcision is no longer the covenant sign for God's people. And there's a lot of ink spilled in the New Testament about why that is and and explaining how in Christ... It's not this physical outward sign of circumcision. It's really, and it's always been, about inward circumcision, inward transformation, or the circumcision of the heart. But that doesn't mean that for you and I today, there's no sign of the covenant. And actually, the passage that I think does a fantastic job of bringing all of these truths together, and I would write this down if you're taking notes, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, brings all of these truths together. Let me read for you Colossians 2, starting in verse 11. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we are circumcised inwardly, what the Bible would call a circumcision of the heart. And so for you and I today as the people of God, the sign of the covenant is no longer physical circumcision. It's been replaced by the sacrament of baptism. Like circumcision, baptism is an outward, tangible sign of an inward and an invisible reality. Most specifically, that we are the recipients of the promises of God. And so the reason that some in this church, like myself included, baptize our babies, baptize our young children, is really the same reason that Abraham and his descendants circumcised their males on the eighth day of their lives. Uh, It's not based on their own profession of faith. You know, an eight-day-old cannot make his own commitment. And that's actually the entire point. It's actually the entire point of it. There would be, for all those males circumcised on the eighth day, there would be conditions for them to meet. As they aged, they would need to come to their own faith in God. They would need to walk before God blamelessly, as God called Abraham to do. Just as my kids and any kids that we would baptize in this church They will need to, by God's grace, put their own faith in Jesus someday. It doesn't guarantee something for them. And my point today really isn't to to explore the the differences between uh, should we baptize babies or not, should we apply the the sign of the covenant to children or not. Uh, You don't have to agree with me or that particular position uh, to be a a member of this church or anything like that. But here's what I really want to get across from this today. I would implore you, wherever you land on that specific topic, to see that in baptism, there is something more and something deeper than just a personal profession of faith. And Colossians 2, other texts in the New Testament make clear, there is incredible continuity between this old covenant sign of circumcision and the new covenant sign of baptism. And it means that as our covenant sign baptism, more than anything else, includes us among the people of God and is a testament to the promises of God. It is a profession of faith for those who believe and get baptized when they believe, but that's only a small part of what it is. Much more than that, it's an inclusion among the people of God and a testament to the promises of God. And Western, hyper-individualistic Christianity reverses this. And so maybe you've been part of this or seen this on like a highlight reel or something, but people get baptized and they celebrate like it's, like it's Deion Sanders scoring a touchdown. Right? And it looks good on a video. It's not the rejoicing at all that's wrong in that moment. By all means, rejoice. The question is, what are you rejoicing in? Are you rejoicing in your individual decision to follow Jesus Or are you more rejoicing in the fact that you've just received the sign of entrance into the covenant community of God? Are you rejoicing that you have a God in Jesus Christ who came and who suffered and who died and who rose and who reigns, whose promises now count on your behalf? Famous reformer Martin Luther suffered from depression. And while he was holed out hiding from the many, many people that wanted to end his life, he would at times reportedly be awake all hours of the night. And he would be terrorized by fear. He'd be overcome by temptation. He'd be suffering some kind of expression of of depression. And his companions reported that they would at times hear him yelling out in the night, even shouting or screaming at the top of his lungs sometimes in the middle of the night. And he would shout and he would scream three words. I am baptized. I am baptized. And that, I think, captures for us as Christians so much more what baptism is. It's a tangible, outward sign of God's promises in the midst of those moments when everything's circumstantial, when every weakness, when every sickness, every brokenness, every doubt is screaming at you that God isn't there or that God is absent. Probably like it was for Abraham and Sarah in this 13-year gap. When you receive the sign of the covenant, when you claim your inclusion among God's people by receiving an outward sign, you bring the realities of God's promise into the present. You remember that through Jesus, just like Abraham, you've been given a new name child of God, son or daughter of the king. And so, baptism is all about who God is and what God has done, and who you are in him, all of the the promises, all that God has promised to do and to be for you through the work of Christ. So as you perceive the gift that this covenant sign of circumcision was to Abraham in the midst of his years of waiting and holding on to faith, may you also see that in your baptism you've been given the same gift. May you see the same thing at this table as we come to it in just a moment and we come to it every week. And may the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table always point us to the work of Christ, that we have become, through Christ, part of God's covenant people. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful that you give us words of your promises, but that you also give us signs, and that we can participate in your finished work, Jesus. We can experience our union with you as we come with faith to to be baptized and as we come with faith to this table. And I pray for each and every one of us here this morning that we would, in our weakness, in our impatience, in these places of our lives where we feel like you are absent or distant or uncaring, God, I pray that we would look to these tangible signs of your promises, that we would be strengthened in them, that we would come to this table this morning, that we would look again upon the finished work of Christ, and that we would see your promises that you have made to us, and that you are are fulfilling those promises, that you have fulfilled so many of them in Jesus, you will bring all of them to completion the day he comes again. So meet with us now as we prepare to come, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment, we'll have servers.